Hey everybody, uh, this is Boki Nahwar and this is the Details Podcast, uh, my co-host Andrzej Tomic. What's up man? Uh, what's up? This is uh, number three, right? Yeah, yep. episode number three. Um, in the first one we had Chris Thomas, uh, who is um, who's a, he's a basketball coach. Um, he was a basketball coach in Golden State Warriors and also a Slovenian national team assistant. Um, the second one, we had Ertan Balaban, who is a mixed martial artist and a jiu-jitsu practitioner. And today we have from LA, um, Cara Santa Maria. She is a science communicator, writer, producer, and television personality. And podcaster. Uh, and a podcaster. Yes, she has her own podcast. Um, it's called, Which is awesome. Uh, yes, Talk Nerdy Podcast. Definitely, you need to check it out. Um, she's uh, She's a really cool... Uh, she's a really cool woman, um, knows her stuff, really knows science, and uh, I can't wait to talk to her and, um, and see what she has to say about various topics that we're going to tackle um, in this conversation. Um, Andre, where can uh, people find us? How can people listen to us? Uh, yeah. give us? Give us some information about that. So, yeah, the website is thedetailspodcast.com, and then we're in iTunes. So if you can rate us there, that'd be great. And you can, of course, subscribe via RSS. And at the end, we'll tell you where we are on Twitter. After the outro. <laughs> exactly. so no, yeah, no jokes at the beginning. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, we, we've done over 25 episodes, I think, in Slovenian. So, uh, the people um, from Slovenia can confirm that whenever you, you write us on Twitter or have questions, suggestions about the show, we always like to uh, write back and uh, we keep in, keep in touch with you. So, yeah, we uh, you're welcome for any comments, yeah. positive or negative, um, as long as it helps the, the show uh, to get better. So, Definitely. hopefully, we'll get in touch with you through Twitter. Um, anything else we forgot, Andrzej, or we can get it started? I think this is it, man. Okay, well, let's start this thing. So um, we have Kara Santa Maria here, um, American science communicator, writer, producer, television personality. Um, she's the host of her own podcast, Talk Nerdy, which is an awesome podcast that I listen to, um, and uh, has done a lot of stuff in her career. Um, I will, I won't be talking about. It. I'll let Kara um, tell more about herself, her career, and um, you know how she got to a point where she is now. I'm sure, um, Carrie, have an interesting story. Um, you know, being a science communicator sounds awesome, <laughs> but uh, you can tell us more about that. So, Kara, uh, uh, welcome to the Details Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, tell me a little bit about your career, how you came to a point where you're now. I mean, you know, I think if you're if you're you know if you like science, like like I do, like like an amateur, you know. I don't I don't do it do, deal with it daily, but I, I read about it and and I and I watch watch documentaries and stuff. I think your name is gonna come up sooner or later. Um, you know, you're you're a so-called science communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does how does one become science communicator? And and tell me about you know your career, your your life, how you got to a point where you're now. Sure. I mean, it's it's a bit of a strange journey. And I think that from meeting a lot of other people who have similar careers to mine, I've learned that everybody's path is very, very different. There's not really a textbook way to become a science communicator. I get this question all the time from people who are interested in doing what I do for a living. What did you study in school? How did you decide to do it? And 
yes, I am starting to see that at least in American universities, there are some interesting tracks for science communication that are being offered. But for the most part, a lot of people come into this career path through really varied decisions. So mine personally was that I was studying science in school. But really, when I first started in university, I was deathly afraid of science. I've told this story before. It's actually not much of a story, but when I was an undergrad, I took the bare minimum science courses that you're supposed to take. Uh, I had to take three different lab science courses. I took oceanography, sounded easy, wasn't, (laughs) wasn't at all, made a C. Um, I took astronomy, sounded cool. I'd get to look at stars. And at the time I was a smoker. So I loved the idea of like having a lab that was outside and we were in the smokers group. So we would, you know, smoke (laughs) cigarettes and look through the telescope. And then the third class I took, I like to embellish and say that it was called paleontology, a class about dinosaurs. I'm not joking in the course guide. It was called dinosaurs in all capital letters with an exclamation point. (laughs) I took dinosaurs in college. It was very exciting. So at that time, I had no idea that science was going to be a path for me. I was a vocal uh, jazz performance major. So I was a jazz singer in high school. That's what I went to college for. That's why I chose to go to the university that I went to. The University of North Texas is a very good music school. I quickly realized that... um, It wasn't fun for me to sing anymore when it became an academic endeavor. And I decided to become a psychology major, honestly, because it sounded easy. And I was a pothead. Like, I had no interest at that point in working very hard. But through psychology, I became interested in the brain. Through psychology, I became interested in the experience of individuals who had dealt with brain damage and how that translated to behavior I had an opportunity to do a a master's thesis and work with an incredible clinical neuropsychologist. And um, I I learned a lot more and I realized, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to go back to school. So I got a master's degree after that in biology with an emphasis in neuroscience. And then I went on to start a PhD in clinical neuropsychology, which is kind of a marriage of those two fields. I, I decided to study that because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do for a, uh, for a living yet, if I wanted to be a clinician, if I wanted to be a lab scientist, and that gave me the best of both worlds. It was a PhD program, so a very research-based program where I'd be doing basic animal research, but it had a whole clinical component where you do internships and externships and you learn how to work with patients. So by the end of it, you're a research scientist with a clinical focus. Um, I never made it to the end of it, though, because (laughs) about a year in, I realized I don't really like this anymore. I love teaching, but I kind of don't like doing the lab work. And so I, I started to fall into step and I started to come into my own. And I realized that probably my talents were best used communicating science, teaching courses, talking to people about why it's so important, why I love it, translating laboratory research for a global audience and maybe a non-technical audience. And in doing that, I quickly realized, you know, maybe I'm not going to be a bench scientist, but I should go into this broader field of science communication. And that's what I did. I ended up doing work in television, on the web, podcasting, all the great things that have come along with it have all been kind of random and amazing opportunities, but that's really where they came from. Okay. And you're from Texas. Right? I'm from Texas. I have a big ass tattoo of Texas on the back of my arm. 
<laughs> I do. Been... We're, we're from in Texas. I, I, lived in, uh, I lived in Houston, actually, for uh, almost three years. Oh, I'm very sorry. No. Why? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm actually from Dallas, from North Texas, from a small okay. town. Well, it's not that small, but from mm. a suburb called Plano, right outside of Dallas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I know what it is. Yeah. yeah, culturally, they're a bit different, but it's still Texas. Houston, I love Houston, and I love the people from Houston, and I have a lot of family in Houston. I personally cannot have, uh, handle the weather in Houston. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's humid. It's, it's so it humid. Yeah, it's like yeah, a muggy yeah. swamp. There's so many mosquitoes. And yeah. <laughs> North Texas is totally different. It's much more similar in some ways to L.A. Um, in other ways, it's very different from L.A. Obviously, there's no ocean. And the weather is really unpredictable in North Texas. It could be 100 degrees one day. 50 degrees the next day. Those are Fahrenheit people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we use a different system. We use the not as good system in the, in the not state. Yeah, oh, oh, wow. That's like really like awesome of you to um, uh, admit that. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's totally ridiculous. The English system of measurement makes absolutely no sense. In the sciences, everybody uses metrics. And so I have a couple benchmarks and metrics that I really understand. Obviously in the metric system, freezing, boiling, room temperature, body temperature, they all make sense to me and they're they're good markers but when it comes to you know the weather outside it's a little bit difficult me f- to convert in my head because i'm so used to using fahrenheit um mm-hmm. but if they're but that's like, the, like i think the weather is the only one where fahrenheit makes more sense because there's because like, it's more specific there's more room sure. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 can yeah. make it because with us, it's like within five degrees, it's basically too hot and just right. Exactly. Yeah. In Fahrenheit, 72, yeah. we would say, is room temperature. But at 74, you might be like, oh, it's it's a bit warm, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, the English system of measurement makes no sense. It's not based on units of 10. It has no uh, relationship to reality. And it's all just held on to because of tradition, which is idiotic. There's a ridiculous band, and it's not really a band because it's one dude, that I love named Adam and his package, A-T-O-M, and his package, his package being, yeah, his package being his guitar and his synthesizer, and he's like this super nerd that really borrows from punk rock culture. Um, He doesn't really make music anymore. I think he's a high school math teacher, but he has uh, type 1 diabetes, so I think it got difficult for him to, to tour, but he has a great song. Um, about the metric system where he really just piles on about how ridiculous is, it is, is that we don't could, use could it. Can we find it on YouTube? Totally. We'll add to the, okay, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll find that. We'll <laughs> totally. Yeah. You guys are about to have your minds blow. A lot of people really don't like Adam and his package and they think I'm insane for listening to it. But if this is your kind of music, you're going to be like, holy shit, why did it take so long for me to find this? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely check it out. Awesome. Um, um, so... Um, you, you mentioned, I, I mean, I, I mentioned the, your podcast, and you also said that you got into podcasting. Um, and since we are on a podcast, podcast now, um, what's what's your opinion on podcasting in general, um, and and how how it changed media, especially in the last, let's say, five to ten years or something like that? Um, and and what do you personally personally get from it? Um, obviously, hosting great guests um, and 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 learning from them. But but why why do you personally do it? Because um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast, but he was telling you that you should do it, and you ended up doing it. But, but why did you actually jump into it, and what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, that was really just the catalyst that helped me get off my ass and do what I had wanted to do for quite some time um, was when Rogan recommended it. But I was already asking on air, should I do this? And, of course, he was like, hey, tweet her. Tell her she should do this. And I got an outpouring of support from Joe Rogan fans and followers like, 
hundreds of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people tweeting to me, messaging me saying, you've got to do it. We'll listen. And that really gave me, I think, the um, sort of the security to know that I could do it. But I had been thinking about podcasting for quite some time. And uh, to be honest, there was a time in my life um, when I started this, which was, okay, so it's October now. Earlier this year, gosh, was it just earlier this year? I think so. Last year, I started working on a television show. It's an American show. You would not have access to it if you're international called Take Part Live, which was a live daily news show on the Pivot mm-hmm. Network. Pivot, yeah. Yes. Is that a new network? It's Because a new network. Yes. It was, okay. It's a, the production company Participant Media, which you may have heard of. They're a film financing company and do a lot of really ground ba- uh, groundbreaking, really socially conscious films. So they did you know, Food Inc. And they did uh, Waiting for Superman. (laughs) And, you know, all of these amazing, that they did The Help, all of these amazing films that have a really strong message. And then they decided, hey, we want to do television. We want to do television that matters. And that show in many ways really mattered. And it was very close to my heart. I was very close to my co-host. And the experience, uh, apart from one specific problem, was very important to me um, and meaningful for me. Unfortunately... There was a person who had a lot of power on that show, the person who ultimately had control over the show, our executive producer, whose name I won't mention, um, <laughs> who was a very difficult person to work for, overtly sexist, had a lot of um, power struggles with me, really worked hard to, quote unquote, put me in my place on the show. And you can see a transformation on this live daily show over the nine months that I contributed to it, starting in the middle of last year up until I think about March or April of this year, um, where I was told what to say. I was told what I shouldn't say. I was told how to dress. I was told how to do my hair. I wasn't allowed to wear black anymore. I had to wear shorter skirt. It was insane. It was like, wear a shorter skirt, wear higher heels. Very transformative. So, for sooner or later, they would, they, would, they, would, they would change it into one of those Fox News, typical exactly. American blonde um, you know, um, TV. Yeah. And it was, (laughs) it was really odd because that wasn't the vibe of the show. It wasn't what the network wanted and it wasn't Mm -hmm. who I was and it wasn't why they hired me. But in many ways I felt over the course of this show, whether it was out of angst or spite or I'm not sure what it was, but there was a lot of bad blood and, um, just really, it was not a comfortable situation for me. And I tried every day to stay true to myself, but I felt more and more that I was losing who I was on air and that I was second guessing myself. And when I would be told, Hey, when you say this, you come across so snobby, or when you say this, you come across so ditzy. Oh, maybe I am. Maybe I do. Maybe people don't like me. It was very much getting into my head, um, which I think was the plan to be honest, which was a shitty situation. And I've learned a lot from it, but I was young and I was, it was my first live daily studio show so at this time I was losing myself and I was really kind of recommended by a lot of core people in my life Joe Rogan being one of them hey you have a strong personality you are who you are your voice is important and this is a great outlet for you because nobody is there to produce you nobody is there to censor you and you get to be pure and it doesn't even have to be journalism it can be if you want it can be opinion if you want or it can be clean conversation clean interviews it's whatever you want it to be and 
in many ways at that time in my life, that was incredibly appealing to me because I was afraid I was losing who I was. And this was a really solid way to gain it back. It really, really gave me perspective at the time. So for selfish purposes, in many ways, podcasting saved my voice because my voice was getting lost. Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely understand. Well, that, yep. that, I was really poetic that at the end. <laughs> but, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but I, I totally get what you, what you're trying to say, and uh, um, I don't know. Even even from my 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 own personal experience, I a lot of things you said, I can kind of um, um, agree with that. You know, um, yeah. You know, especially giving giving you a voice. Um, you know, I'm in a different different. I quote unquote work in a different different field being a, a, a pro athlete but still it gives you a chance to 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 uh, to speak your mind to say say your opinions and not to be just that that guy that's on tv for for the duration of the game or the quick interview after the game it gives you a chance to talk more and to to express yourself more so um, and for you i, I mean definitely what you're saying. for you it seems like it gives you an opportunity to be to be thoughtful and heady and intellectual which is something i'm not sure about barcelona um i'm not sure about spain in general uh but here in the states I don't think that there's an expectation that professional athletes have brains. I, I think that they're treated <laughs> in such a way that they're expected not to. They're not expected yeah. to engage in discourse about politics or about philosophy or about uh, anything of meaning. And so what a great opportunity for somebody who's like, hey, I'm also somebody who thinks like I yeah, have a well, voice. I mean Thanks. Yeah, but that that's that's in a way that I look at it. Yeah, it gives me another opportunity to, um, to like I said, to to express myself, to give my opinions, and also to uh, to you know meet new people and learn from them. You know, that's, that's sure. another thing. And share that with people. I think the sharing with other people conversations like like this one now. I think it uh, if there's a one person that's going to learn something from this, I'll I'll be happy. You know, and then share the word forward and so on and so on and so on. And that's that's how it, how it goes. You know. Sure. And I mean, for me again, I think that. You mentioned, you know, the blondes on Fox News. I'm glad that you're mm -hmm. able to bring that up because sometimes I'm not sure how much American culture translates. I know what I know <laughs> from um, from visiting. I've, I've been around the world and I've visited many places. And so I see what I see and I know what kinds of, you know, generally what kinds of stereotypes are held. But... Yes, that Fox News model of, you know, a woman who's very leggy, who reads off of a teleprompter, a script that somebody else wrote for her, who doesn't have a thought in her head. Unfortunately, many of those women aren't even that. Those are strong, bright women who have worked very hard. And I think that there's a culture in media of putting women in an expected role. And we still haven't broken out of that. And unfortunately, most of the time, the people in power the people who are running the networks, the people who are on the board of the major networks, and the people who make the decisions about casting and make the decisions about the goals and the voice of the show are men. And those men mm -hmm. have a very specific idea of how the women on the show should behave, how they should appear, how they should come across. And it's not easy for strong American female journalists or female voices, pundits, whatever, to be able to be their own person because there's so much pressure to be manufactured. But, but do you think that's changing though? Like are, are people kind of getting tired of the same old, you know, news with, with more or less same people or, or that appear the same and uh, and then turning more into into podcasting and, and let's say alternative media or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I I, sure, I certainly have a feeling that it's it's changed 
I'm yeah. not going to say a lot, but it, it has changed. I mean, it's 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 changing, and people are opening their eyes and are turning into uh, to 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 find more about you know news or whatever from alternative media, not just the the seven o'clock news on the local local TV station. Well, I think that it is changing, and I don't want to sound like you know. Debbie Downer. I think it's changing, but it's not changing quickly enough. I think that there's a lot more um, smoke and mirrors about the fact that it's changing. And yes, there are major, huge swaths of people that listen to podcasts. But when I look at my podcast numbers, which are growing every day, and I'm so appreciative of the people who support the podcast, who tune in, who listen. Um, I mean, I absolutely love my listeners. You compare those numbers to a Fox News broadcast or a cnn broadcast and it's 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 non-comparable the truth is we like to talk about how there's this movement of change of underground of new media but the numbers don't add up people watch fox news a lot and the reason that fox news plays to the advertisers and play and i shouldn't just say fox news msnbc is just as guilty (laughs) and lately we've seen that cnn is embarrassing about this they don't (laughs) do legitimate report i mean they're i'm not saying they never do there's some very good reporting but for the most part they're not giving the people the news that they need to hear they're giving the people the news that they want to hear and mm-hmm. they are appealing to the lowest common denominator. They're appealing to fear. They're appear- appealing to um, salaciousness. And the reason they do it is because they have the ratings to prove that it works for them. Yeah. That's like you quoting Anchorman. Too, <laughs> That's the plot of Anchorman too, I think. <laughs> I love Lamp. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I just saw it like two weeks ago again. It's really funny. It's- <laughs> yeah, it's too, like, I actually like the second one better because it's that whole cable news uh, like formation. I, it's just awesome. There are aspects of the second one that I really like better, but then I got to tell you that whole West Side Story street fight. It reminded yeah. me. It reminded me of the episode of Family Guy where he gets in the fight with the chicken, but it's like the whole fucking episode. Yeah, and you're like yeah, okay. you're like it went on too long, people. <laughs> like this is a yeah, bad yeah, SNL yeah, sketch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when 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 Will Smith shows up, it kind of gets I know. weird. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna give you that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I think like like there there are like a bunch like you said like swaths of people like turn, tuning into alternative media, but like I think that. That, that, you know, wave basically needs to swell and it's going to be a long time before anything gets planned. It does. It needs to swell. We need yeah. to see more more young people who I think have the, that, that strength in numbers. I think that we need to see more women. Oh, my God. I looked at my statistics recently on the podcast and I get, in terms of listenership, something like 79% male and 21% female. <laughs> and I was told, yeah. I'm not going to lie, I was told by an advertising company that I was working with that those were high female listenership numbers for me. That advertisers would look at my podcast as if it were a woman-friendly podcast. That's a bad thing. It's a bad thing yeah. when 21% of my listeners are women and that's considered high. That's interesting. Uh, Andre, you know, your whole podcast network um do you have any idea what the numbers would be? Um, you know, male no, to female ratio. Like over, yeah. over here, we the breakdown I get is basically by platform. So I'd, I'd actually have to do a survey. That's the way that I knew. But, yeah, it was it was based on yeah. service. But yeah, but, 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 but if you had to guess, so, I'm wondering because we never never really talked about about this. If you had to guess, what do you think? Well, it would we do be? have a show where it's four women talking about movies. That's, so that's I one imagine of them. Yeah. That that must like that has to be the other way. Around. I don't know. Yeah. It'd be funny. I don't, yeah. Maybe it's thirty, forty percent women, but apparently it's it's endemic in um in podcasting. 
podcasting itself does not have a female audience. They're just not there. It's the same. I mean, YouTube is a little better, but it's still predominantly male. And you see it also in America, at least on the on the science leaning. Now I say leaning because there's like hardly any science on them anymore. But if you look at Discovery Channel, Science Channel, Nat Geo, Nat Geo Wild, um, they're heavily male. I remember. Honestly. Yeah. I remember one time there was a while where Google was doing this thing. It wasn't Google Analytics. It was like Google Insights or maybe it was Analytics where you could log in. And it would tell you based on all of the scary things they do to track you, like all of those, you know, um, NSA <laughs> yeah. scary things. It would tell you who they thought you were demographically based on your internet searches. And it thought I was a 65 year old man. <laughs> and that's okay. I, I do not want to see your search. Uh, no. <laughs> that's just. That's just... That just sounds creepy on a couple I know, of it does. But you know what? Yeah. The truth is, it's just because I'm a science journalist. So I read science. I read science online. Oh, right. yeah. And apparently only old men read science. That's bad. We need to change that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this just has like all kinds of echoes of Gamergate and all of that stuff. Yeah. Like, it just, yeah, it just yeah. gets depressing. It does. It gets yeah. so depressing. It's one of those things where you try so hard to stay out of it because you're like, this isn't my fight. But at the same time, when you see how vicious people can be yeah. it's hard to sit quietly it's hard yeah, to i just do. keep imagining they're all 16 that's how i yeah. like process or 14 it. Just, yeah or 14 yeah i'm just hoping they're all 14 and they have no idea what they like what they're doing and who they are exactly like that's that, that's my hope that's I yeah. think, the best case scenario and that they'll you know yeah. the frontal lobes will develop they'll have sex yeah. you know they'll have sex yes. they'll, they'll find a girl exactly yeah. they'll yeah. learn about respect and all of those things yeah. that you learn through trial and error, and they'll become functioning <laughs> yeah. members of society. We'll see. Yeah, but they just keep getting replaced by douchebags. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah just get, yeah. But I did not know that uh, like uh, podcast skewed towards men because I do like I do a really techy show in English as well, mm-hmm. and I just talk to Mac nerds all the time. So I imagine that's where it gets really like uh, male heavy. Yeah. But I just figured like a sciencey type show. Oh, science is, you know, fundamentally it it skews towards men. And then the problem is podcasting in general skews towards men, which I'm not sure I really understand why. But that being said, I don't listen to that many podcasts. Like I, you know, I'm not a big podcast listener. It's not really the medium for me that makes the most sense. It's very seldom that I have uninterrupted time to listen um, once in a while when I'm in the car for that long, but I don't, I can't really listen while I'm working out. I need kind of music that's upbeat. Otherwise I'm like, Oh, I hate this. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not like motivated. Like most people are to go to the gym. So I have to convince myself that it's something I want to do. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's hard for me to find time to listen to long form conversations. Okay. So like, what does that mean for you since you're like a science communicator mm-hmm. and, the, and a woman? Yeah. Like how does that like... Oh, and, I, I don't and know, I'm an the, atheist. The reception you get. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Over there, that's a big deal. Over here, that's kind of... I know. A, oh, know, my God. Over, kind of situation. Over here, it's <laughs> like I, I don't even what to... I don't know what to liken it unto for you guys. But I have a friend um, or a colleague, I should say, named AJ Johnson, who's big in the, in the skeptic atheist movement. She's a black lesbian atheist. Like, oh, that's awesome. I know she's amazing. <laughs> that's every box is ticked. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, you are such a badass because I feel like I'd be looking over my shoulder every day. 
Like that's yeah. the world that we live, or I should say, that's the country we live in. Sorry to drag you guys. Yeah, into no, it. but I actually wanted. <laughs> yeah, but I want. That's why I actually wanted to ask you, but I was kind of afraid because you. That's why I said you're from Texas. Yeah, right? born and raised. Because I imagine all of that is even worse in Texas, or is that a, like a not a fair study? No, it is. It is even worse in Texas. But the thing that I think a lot of people forget is that what ends up happening is that the group of people who are progressive, who are liberal, who are, you know, left-leaning, atheists, pro-gay rights, all of these wonderful things, they're everywhere. They're all over the country. They're just marbled in. And what you find is that they're in many ways more passionate when they come out of the South because they're having to be that way in the face of major oppression. They're having to do it against the grain and against the norm whereas when you meet somebody in like la or san francisco and they're like yeah i'm liberal they're they're oftentimes what the term we use is limousine liberals they're sort of like you know wishy-washy about it because they they've never felt that they've never had their backs against the wall they've never needed Mm -hmm. to stand up for those convictions because there's not like an angry mob with pitchforks surrounding them you know what i mean i grew up mormon i was raised in a family in a the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church. And you weren't allowed to be gay. You definitely weren't allowed to be an atheist. You Until the 70s, you weren't allowed to be black. Yeah. I mean, this is a very oppressive... But, you know, magic underpants. Exactly. They'll save That's, you from everything. Yeah. And so Basically, this, is, this yeah. is the culture I grew up in, and it's the culture that in many ways is still I'm heavily entrenched in because even though I live in Los Angeles, even though I left Texas when I was uh, 24, 324 moved to New York and then moved to Los Angeles. My whole family still lives in Texas. My father, his wife, their children, they're all still Mormon. And I'm expected to to maintain some semblance of a relationship with these people. I work very hard to patch up a lot of the um the difficulties that came out of me leaving the church at 14 and me not communicating with my father for many years. But when I go back home to visit, I'm actually scheduled to go home in December for the first time in two years. I forget. And then I walk off the plane and I realize again how how much Christian privilege there is, how much obesity there is, how much, I don't know, just how many conservative values are so expected that you forget that you're oppressed when you've been away from it for so long. It's almost completely flipped in los angeles i'll say things i feel really bad about it actually i have a lot of friends who are scientists and science communicators i have a very good friend who i work with who is a strong science communicator who's also christian and i literally forget that that's a thing so oh yeah because la it's la yeah. yeah so i remember we were all going to the um to the mount wilson observatory up in pasadena um to to look through the 60 inch telescope and we had planned it on Easter, but none of us realized it because none of us celebrate Easter. And so we're, we're looking at the calendar and somebody goes, oh, shit, we're going on Easter. And I was like, that doesn't fucking matter. Like, nobody cares. And like this one person was like, well, I'm, you know, I need to go to services or whatever. And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, I just don't, you know, I'm like, nobody believes in God. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but, but, but then I forget. Oh, yeah. Like 99 percent of people in the South do. Yeah, but, but since, a, since that was a really bullshit. Like no, no, that was a bullshit statistic. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know, I know, it's a bullshit statistic. But like, I don't know. I'm, I'm always kind of wary because you, you, you sort of get this. You know, the, the, the typical southerner, like American southerner. You have this stereotype where it's just all like the Bible Belt and all of that stuff. Yeah. 
But like, because I've never been there, and like, Boki just played for the Houston Rockets, so I doubt he went to a, like a bunch of churches. Down no, there. but he probably I, I heard mean, everybody thanking God for the wins that they got, right? Well, thanking Jesus, a lot. thanking I mean, God, it's, praying. It's a big difference. I mean, uh, you know, being European and going from Europe, my first, um, the first time I moved to the States was to Houston. So it was very typical Texan, you know, southern, southern city. And then going from there to live in New York, uh, yeah, huge difference. Huge difference in mentality of the people. The, I'm not going to say the culture, but yeah, you can, you can, you can definitely see a difference, especially someone that's, that was as neutral as, as I was, you know, coming yeah. from Europe. Um, well, and the funny and, thing is, there's a stereotype about Texas versus New York, right? And in many ways, it totally holds true. Mm-hmm. Texans are much more, I don't know, cordial. They have, like, better manners. They've got superficial kindness, you know, that, like, neighborly vibe. They do. Almost yeah. like, almost, it's almost fake, but... Uh, almost I, fake, I mean, but if you grow up fake, with it, but it's, it is genuine. It's to very me, it nice. nice. It's very genuine. We, it's just you're raised with manners. You're raised to like yeah, be kind yeah, to the people yeah. around you. And in New York, there's none of that. But no, 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 no. but you think okay, but in New York, it's metropolitan and people are open minded and they're not as religiously oppressed, right? So I am teaching at university in Texas at the University of North Texas, and I'm teaching biology and I'm teaching about evolution. And then I moved to New York to work on this PhD that I started, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be so cool to teach about evolution in a New York university, a public edu. I, I've always taught in public schools, so um, like state or city colleges. And so, mm-hmm. oh, it's going to be so much different. It's going to be so much different. So I moved from Plano, Texas to Queens. I'm living in Forest Hills, Queens, and I'm taking the bus every day to Flushing to the Queens College campus of the City University of New York. And I realize, like, half of my class are Orthodox Jews. And oh, right, this yeah. is a culture mm-hmm. that I hadn't really um, gotten to know in Texas because the Jewish culture is just not very big. And so I had a few Jewish friends, but they were all very kind of like reformed. They were really liberal. And I I, th- I thought of like Texas Jews as Democrats, you know, and I didn't realize <laughs> because they were. I didn't realize that there were like really Orthodox Jews that were just as religious as the Bible thumping Christians. And so I get there and I'm teaching evolution, and these kids are like, "You don't actually believe this, do you?" And I'm like, "Oh God, it's not a belief; it's a scientific theory." And so I have to like go into the whole thing. And literally, people are teaching me things that I didn't know. Like I'm trying to show a kid how to use a microscope, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and he's very kind, but he's like, "You know, professor, like you're not allowed to touch us." Like, we're unmarried, wow. and so men can't be touched wow. by, by women. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, there are these cultural yeah. <laughs> things that I do not understand because, of course, I'm, like, a blasphemer. I'm this atheist who doesn't give two fucks about, like, religious um, sort of dogmatic stuff. I very much respect Jewish kind of secular culture the same way that I respect anybody's Secular culture, I respect a lot of the horrible things that a lot of my Jewish friends uh, had relatives that obviously went through and kind of why they maintain these cultural norms and these traditions. But when it comes to the religious shit, I don't respect much religion. I just don't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a huge fight in America right now between Sam Harris and Ben Affleck and Bill Maher and this big group of things over Islam Oh yeah, I saw and that, yeah, yeah, it's like everybody's up in arms about it because what ends up happening is you have this liberal guilt, this cultural sensitivity, where it's like, oh, I can't say anything um, critical. I'm so boxed into a corner because I'm so concerned. And it's true, there is horrible racism that happens in America, especially right now towards Arab nations. Horrible mm-hmm. racism. 
But people mix that up with intellectual criticism of religious dogma. And so they become so overly sensitive about the racism, which is a completely understandable position to be in, that they become permissive about really bad human rights violations because they're like, oh, well, I'm a cultural relativist, whatever. And in my head, I'm like, no, you don't fucking stone a woman to death for cheating on her husband. I don't care what you believe. It's disgusting. So yeah. I have a very yeah. different view about kind of religious influence and, and civil well, rights and some liberals well, do in America. But still, like science and religion throughout history have been, you know, f- let's say, f- I don't know, f- contradicting, fighting each other or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, a little bit I'm at sure odds, it, for sure. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> but, but, a little bit. <laughs> but, but in your, I mean, in your line of work, you probably have a lot of situations where you have to deal with one or the other. I mean, um how do you, um, I mean, is your belief that eventually, you know, science and religion can coexist? And if how, like, how would, you, how, how does the person navigate through that? Because it's a, like you said, it's a very touchy subject. And yeah, um, I mean, I, I still have a relatively moderate view. I used to, okay, I used to be what a lot of people would call like a new atheist. Maybe they would throw Sam Harris, Chris Hitchens. Um, that group of people, uh, maybe Bill Maher, into this group, or Richard Dawkins, this group of people who are like, they might say they're vitriolic about it. They might say, um, you know, they have a zero tolerance policy and that all religion is terrible and blah, blah, blah. And I used to very much feel that way. I'm an atheist. Religion is stupid, blah, blah. And then I realized, wait a minute. What I do for a living is I communicate science. I don't communicate atheism. My atheism is personal. I speak up for my atheism because I see atheistic rights in America as a civil rights issue just because it's like it's a very different culture in America and if you come out to say that you're an atheist you're never going to hold public office people look at you like you're a leper it's really bad like there's a lot of Christian privilege in America so I try to speak up for atheist rights in that way but I have no interest in converting anybody to disbelief like that's crazy but I am interested in promoting scientific thought in promoting the scientific method and improving science literacy in our country which we we desperately need And what I realized one day, which it seems like I should have come to this a little sooner, was that probably the worst way to convince somebody that scientific thought is the true path to knowledge is to tell them that they're stupid because they believe in God. Mm. It's just not that effective. So Mm. I started to really break apart why do people believe, what are their beliefs like, and I realized that I think a lot of people that are religious are not fundamentalists. They're not um, biblical, like they don't believe in a literal translation of the Bible. And in many ways, they have a more progressive stance. I know a lot of people that are Christian or Jewish that totally think gay marriage is is legitimate, that the Bible doesn't contradict it. They don't pick and choose which Bible verses to live by. They look at the Bible as if it's a book of parables, a really great uh, theological and kind of philosophical book of important stories to learn things from. And I think that if you're that kind of a religious person, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being religious and being a scientific thinker. I think those things can very much coexist. If you're an adaptive person, who is progressive in thought and who understands that you're constantly going to have to look at the science and adapt the religion to be able to keep up with new understandings in science. But if you're a fundamentalist who sees things in the Bible that are completely contrary to to scientific evidence and you hold on to those things in spite of the fact 
that they have been debunked by modern science, you're not going to be able to uh, reconcile those things in your head. I personally can't reconcile God. It doesn't work for me. I don't believe, and I'm a, I, I'm not spiritual. I don't think anything happens after you die except that the worms eat you. I have a very staunch kind of materialist view, but there are many people who don't see the world that way, who have religious inclinations and are also very committed to scientific thought and inquiry, and they, they've figured out how to reconcile it. Who am I to say that they shouldn't? Mm-hmm. Okay, so can I just ask you, like, because like judging from your background, mm-hmm. right? So you, you're basically now an atheist and a science communicator and just like, yay, science and all exactly. that stuff. Exactly, right? yeah. But like when, when you were, the last time you were on Rogan, you basically advocated like universal healthcare which you know of like where you're from that's like satan talking oh totally <laughs> just, yeah no like yeah but like, like how did you avoid basically not being the you know woman with the wrong ball t-shirt? no i know like, how did you avoid because that seems because i imagine coming from a mormon background yeah. right and then just rebelling against that i think that whole you know ron paul 2012 whatever the hell the slogan was that that should have been you right totally like how- and i think that what ends up happening too a lot of times is that you find people who i mean let's let's use religion as an example of this and i know it sounds like i'm meandering but i promise i'll get back to your point people who were born in saudi arabia or people who were born in Texas, or people who were born in Chile, or whatever, they grow up to be the religion that they were born into. Like, that's just how it is. You yeah, grow for up... Part, for sure, yeah. Yeah, you're surrounded yeah, by exactly. a certain school of thought, and you are ordained to be that way. It feels that way from God. Oh my God, I'm the one true religion. They all fucking think they're the one true religion. And they don't have a choice in the matter, because it's what everybody around them thinks. And when you are forming your earliest neural connections when you are interacting with the world around you and you're becoming a fully formed human being with emotions and thoughts and executive functions, your environment is grossly entangled with that process. It's very difficult to tease out exactly what led to what. So it's to be expected that most people and the data show that most people think the way their parents thought. Most people are complete and total products of their environment. They're the same religion. They're the same political leaning. Why certain people rebel, why certain people don't look or sound the way that they should quote unquote because of how they grew up is beyond me i for example don't have a southern accent you might be able to point out certain things i do say y'all um and i pronounce (laughs) yeah and i pronounce certain words kind of weird like i say insurance instead of insurance that's been Mm -hmm. pointed out to me many times but it's like okay but if you listen to my sister talk she talks like this and we grew up in the same family Why did that happen? I don't know. Did I make a conscious effort at six years old not to develop an accent? I have no idea. Ask my six-year-old self. But it's a a very strange thing that there's some conglomeration of factors, be it um, environmental, be it intrinsic. Uh, You know, there's a personal journey that people go on. And sometimes two people can stand in the same room and get the same evidence to presented to them and they interpret it differently so i have no idea first of all why i left the church when i was 14 why i felt compelled to push back and say i don't believe in god because i didn't uh, why i tried really hard to be a good mormon and a, and a st- firm believer but no matter what i did 
I didn't feel the spirit. And I have no idea why I latched on to uh, incredibly progressive principles. I'm not even a Democrat. I mean, that's way too conservative for me. I'm definitely more yeah, that, left-leaning that, that, than that. <laughs> okay, honestly, yeah, because that, that was my take. Because when I listened to that episode, yeah. I was like, what? Who, what? you're basically a European. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. It's so, and the thing is, American politics used to have that flavor. If you look back at the Democrats of the 60s, if you look at a lot of things pre-Reagan, you saw that, that if we are going to be dealing within the two-party system, at least that two-party system represented two really firm ideological camps, progressives and conservatives. And progressives had reasonable... A platform. It was about overhauling things that weren't working. It was about civil rights. It was about taking care of the little man. And you looked at conservatives, and they also had a reasonable platform. It was about um, being industrious and taking care of yourself and making sure that you were fiscally responsible and that you worked hard to make sure that your family could stand on its own two feet. And both of those groups understood when government intervention was necessary. Both of those groups understood um, regulations. And then what happened is when Reagan got into office, we started to see a shift. I'm not blaming it at all on Reagan because it's happened progressively since then. But that middle point started shifting more and more to the right. And so even the Democrats are very centrist now and the Republicans are literally off the reservation. Like they're just insane. <laughs> and both parties became through a series of horrible court cases and uh, rulings by the Supreme Court. Both parties became more and more indebted to big multi-conglomerate corporations. And really yes. our governmental policy in America is which business interest has the most money and can give the most campaign contributions to the most influential people. They always win. All of the legislation that's written is written to appease the people who funded their campaigns. Politicians don't actually write laws anymore. They just campaign full time. And it's, it's, it's a function of money being equivalent to free speech uh, with the Citizens United ruling. But it started long before that when there were no caps put on or when there was no real um, regulation put on campaign finance reform. It's a, it's a huge problem in this country. Yeah, and the super PACs. This, yeah, that, right? there should be no, there should literally be no allowed money in politics. If 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 we completely overhauled the system so that our um, elected officials, all of them, our legislators and our executor, our president, um, could not campaign with funds from businesses or individuals, we would have a totally different government in this country. Well, yeah, but money's free speech. Exactly. Yeah. Cit you guys Citizens United. Up on that oh one. my God. <laughs> yeah. Citizens United was the worst Supreme Court decision that was ever made. Yeah, because basically it all comes like at least from what I've read, like and what we were taught actually, because I'm a poli sci, mm -hmm. uh, I uh, actually studied political science. That's where it really got off the rails. Oh, completely. And that is that I mean, is a textbook definition of activist judiciary. Which it should not happen. The judiciary is a th the third because the, our governmental structure. Don't get me wrong, is fucking brilliant. I'm a constitutionalist to the T. I love the United States Constitution, and I think it was incredibly well written. And I think that it's been amended because historically people understood too. Oh, we live in a different era. Now we can amend it to fit the you know the vibe of the times. And the amendments make perfect sense. They tried to fucking 
you know, prohibit people from buying alcohol. It didn't fucking work. They overturned it. Originally, the Constitution was written in a time when it was an incredibly racist country, not just the country, the entire world was. Slaves, black, black people were considered three-fifths of a person, which was disgusting. That was amended. They realized this is fucking disgusting. They grew up, they were progressive, and they changed things. It's a living, breathing document, and it's based on very important fundamental principles, which are that everybody is equal, everybody has equal rights and an equal say, and that the government is represented by the people and the way that we can prevent any one group from having too much power like in many monarchy societies is that the executive branch the legislative branch and the judiciary will have different roles and they'll have checks and balances on each other when everybody starts working in cahoots and when the judiciary starts to legislate from the bench starts to make decisions that will impact laws not because they're looking at you know how do i interpret the constitution because they're saying oh if i make this decision then this is going to be the outcome and that's a political agenda i have that's a fucking problem it's a huge problem and it's not yeah, the way the system the republicans, is supposed to the work the republicans the, the last two supreme court justices right no the the, the last one was a democratic yes. appointee yeah, right because the, the woman right i forget her yeah name, because like obama's the, the, been in office now six years yeah. so we so he's been able to do that but there was a you know a long stretch of bush before that then clinton yeah. but then there was bush before that so they are Alito and the, the, the Chief Justice, right? Roberts. Never forget the names right, right? Uh, there's, yeah, those, the- there's a bunch of terrible justices on the Supreme Court right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are screwed, basically. Oh, like, completely. I don't know how that gets better. Like, that does not get oh, better. Oh, I mean, yeah. and that's the thing about our system is that the justices basically die. They have to die before yep. there's a new seat that opens up. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it takes a while. it takes a while i mean some of them actually um retire like that has happened uh sandra day o'connor retired she was amazing she and she was Mm -hmm. a reagan appointment but i mean scalia holy shit yeah scalia he's he's just gonna be there oh my god he's not leaving so old i'm just looking it up he he was born (laughs) in 1936 he's so old honestly yeah he looks way better for like a guy that old 36 yeah he's old he's old man oh wow Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and he's been he's been a justice for 28 years and done nothing wrong since okay (laughs) (laughs) all right Uh, to to move away a little bit from the (laughs) yeah let's talk talk more about wonky american politics yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna turn into a real political show here um (laughs) but uh, kara which um which area or which field of science is the most most interesting for you what do you what do you like to work on the most yeah Um, so because it's a pretty wide science is a pretty pretty wide um how does it term you know science is huge so i my focus is neuroscience. That's what I, I got mm-hmm. into academically because I was really interested in human behavior and how it's reflected in the brain. I have a very strong sensibility and it's not uncommon with modern neuroscientists that the mind and the brain are the same thing, that mind is an emergent property of the brain. That, for example, mental illness, which is an important field for me, is um, is biological illness. It's fundamental to problems with the brain and that we should be approaching psychiatry and psychology from a biological medical perspective. Um, so th- that that's really fascinating to me. One of the earliest things I read was um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks, which is an incredible 
book of clinical tales about people with fascinating, devastating, beautiful, and inspiring uh, cases of brain damage. And it really shows how much we how tenuous it really is for all of us and how much our personalities are shaped by the way that our brain works. And so this book, if you haven't read the man who mistook, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, you're really missing out. I very much recommend you pick up this book. It changed my life. It might change yours too. Um, But the cool thing is as I got into science communication and science journalism, my, Uh, horizons really expanded. I was no longer just allowed to talk about the brain and the things I'm comfortable and safe knowing about. I had to report on space. And it was like, oh, fuck. Uh, Remember that astronomy class I took where I smoked a bunch of cigarettes in college? (laughs) Like, uh, I have to remember things from that. No, that's the great thing about being a journalist is that you get to learn with your readers and with your viewers. So I've been really uh, blessed to be able to go out on trips You know, I went to uh, Alaska to learn about genetically modified salmon. And there's a chance that I'll be visiting Antarctica soon. And I get to, you know, learn from amazing, uh, like, astronomers and amazing chemists and, and biomedical scientists in fields that I don't know anything about. And I get to ask them cool questions and learn about what they do. So I'm very lucky that even though I'm not trained in in other fields of science, I've been able to kind of, uh, I don't know, like scratch my curiosity itch a little. The one, the one field that I have to say I'm just like a total fangirl of is paleontology. I love dinosaurs. And if you guys could see my apartment, like the view behind where I'm sitting, you would see that I just have a bookshelf full of like dorky dinosaur toys i have a dinosaur tattoo i've literally never studied paleontology except for that one class dinosaurs in all capital letters (laughs) um but i love them i love them they're a, a fascination from childhood that i never lost and i partially attribute that to the fact that i've always been something of a materialist i think it's innate in me i it was hard for me to try to believe in god i don't remember ever believing in santa claus i have a hard time watching television shows with um fantasy components i never i was never compelled or emotionally um interested in unicorns or you know monsters or dragons so, so you're gonna tell me you're not watching game of thrones i don't watch game of thrones oh my god that yeah. is just that's what a, everybody that's says that's nice. what everybody says but the thing is for me drag dinosaurs are dragons that actually existed well yeah but god oh, we're not gonna go i know into it's that, a different it's just, thing yeah, i know it's, it's a hard time it's a hard <laughs> thing for me to suspend disbelief it's something i've been working on honestly because i want to appreciate the fantasy culture that a lot of my friends do. I mean, I'm a nerd. Yep. It's like I'm surrounded by this all the time. I need to learn to appreciate it. <laughs> but there is something so beautiful to me about the paleontological story. It's probably the greatest detective story at, of all time. The earth has all these amazing clues buried deep within it from a time that we simply don't have access to. And we get to like modern day, a modern day Sherlock Holmes put together all of these clues to understand a world that we will never be able to live within. And it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, okay. Kara, the, uh, the hot topic to say like this lately has been Ebola and, uh, the whole spread of, of, of the virus and so on and so on. And, you know, uh, you know, following the, some of the, the U S media, I mean, it's, it seems like there's a mass hysteria <laughs> over there. 
about about Ebola. How I mean, I, I I saw I think one or two of your interviews or TV um, appearances that you had on this topic. Um, and can you maybe talk about it here and share with our audience your opinion about it and your view about it and how, how dangerous is it, is it really and how afraid should we be of, of Ebola? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that it, it, it shames me uh, that my country, it, it makes me feel guilty that the American media only gave a shit about this horrible uh, crisis in West Africa as soon as one of our own was infected. Like it, that it somehow it was covered, but not to the extent that immediately when an aid worker was going to be sent back to an American hospital near the CDC, people went fucking ape shit. And then more recently, when a man actually traveled here from West Africa and then um, showed signs of Ebola later and recently he passed away, which is very sad. He was in Dallas, Texas. People like I got a text from my mom the other my mom and I were talking about my trip to go home. And she just said the most astute thing because she was saying people are flipping shit in Dallas. They won't go near the neighborhood where this guy lived. And she texted me something that said um, ignorance and fear are – I think it was something like ignorance and fear are a, are a deadly combination. And it, it's so true. Like this is a function of people not understanding the difference, for example, between how infectious something is – and how contagious something is. This is a function of people looking at human beings as if they're somehow different if they're not from your tribe, which is absolutely disgusting. And uh, this is a function of the media really pandering to our most base fears and concerns instead of actually communicating truth. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm not concerned about Ebola in my backyard at all. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be wasting resources on that. I'm not concerned that there is going to be an Ebola epidemic in the United States. Our health care is absolutely stellar. We know exactly what to do. We know how to quarantine individuals. And yes, it's incredibly unfortunate that one of the nurses who was working um, with this man who recently passed away from Ebola in Dallas uh, we just found out that she became infected. And she it's, was like she, her part of her neck or something was like exposed, or I read something. Yeah, about it. I'm not sure. It's just like maybe negligence or negligence, right, or it's know. a mistake. You mistake, know what I mistake, mean? It's mistake, like you yeah. try your best and mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly unfortunate, and I really hope that she pulls through. But the truth is, we're not going to see then ten more people get infected, then hundreds of people. It's not going to happen here because we have protocol protocols in place and we don't have some of the cultural blocks that are causing Ebola to spread like wildfire in West Africa. The reason Ebola is spreading in West Africa is because the resources aren't there. We didn't get boots on the ground early enough to try and quarantine the originally infected individuals before they started traveling all over the place. And there are cultural blocks. We don't have a problem with, and I hate this term because it's honestly a racist term, we don't eat bushmeat in America. We eat wild game and all of a sudden that's sophisticated. Mm. And in Africa, <laughs> if they eat bushmeat, then it's like savage. It's, it's just a horrible thing. But we don't have a risk of eating apes because we're desperate for food that may be infected with Ebola. So right there, we're not going to see the kind of zoonosis happening in our country. We're not going to see the original infected index cases. Like you'll con you're always going to have that in Africa. Mm -hmm. Even after this Ebola crisis is diminished, another Ebola case will come up because somebody will 
will tangle somehow with wildlife that's infected with it. And the hope is, again, that we can kind of contain it. But secondarily, there are cultures in Africa, there are kind of traditions of, um, and I shouldn't say in Africa, that's very vague and broad, but in these West African nations um, that are affected in Sierra Leone, in uh, Liberia, Liberia, in Guinea, yeah, yeah. yeah, where individuals, for example, it's customary to touch the body of somebody during funereal um, uh, proceedings. Well, you cannot touch the body of, of somebody who died of Ebola. Right. You will likely get sick and they do it anyway because that's a it's a custom. Mm -hmm. There's also a problem with fear mongering where, you know, there are ideas that, for example, the doctors brought in Ebola because they're trying to steal um, your blood. This is a this is something that's been told around different villages and people become afraid. Also, look at it this way. You're an individual. Somebody in your family gets sick and then they die. Somebody else in your family gets sick and then they die. Then doctors, European doctors, American doctors start coming in and taking people away from your house. They come in in something that looks like a spacesuit. They spray a bunch of chemicals. They take those people away and they never come back. Or when they come back, they come back in a body bag. Mm. over and over and over and then they come for you are you going to want to go with them this is a problem it's a problem of education it's a problem of historically having so many lines crossed when we communicate with indigenous peoples and not trying to understand their culture and how we can work with their culture instead of working against their culture to communicate some sort of quote-unquote western medical agenda and because of this it's it's out of control in West Africa, but that literally has nothing to do with the efforts to contain Ebola that we're seeing in Europe and America and what we think of as more westernized or first world nations where we have we just have the resources to contain this thing and we don't have a lot of the same issues in the field that these doctors without borders, Ebola um, hospitals have and if you have access to it um there's a great american program called frontline on pbs which is our public television it's probably one of the last bastions of like incredible investigative journalism in america (laughs) and they did a real it's only a half hour piece about ebola but they went and visited one of these doctors without borders hospitals and you see the faces of individuals that contract the disease you you know that certain people die you see certain people survive and it just it takes away some of the fear don't get me wrong it's incredibly scary you have to be very cautious if you're in a situation where you're at risk but if you're not then you have to understand that you're not you're just not at risk but seeing the face of somebody who has ebola and seeing that they look like they have the flu they don't look like they're not bleeding out of their nose and their eyes and their ear there's this cultural kind of hot zone richard preston thing that happened outbreak you know contagion mm-hmm. and people think of these inflated sort of fictional scenarios as being real I also would recommend, and I mention this almost every time I talk about Ebola, if you haven't read it yet, read an incredible book by David Quammen called Spillover. The book is not just about Ebola. It's about zoonosis in general, which is a term that refers to when an infection population of animals spills over into human infection. So when something, when we can get some, like swine flu or, you know, when we can Mm -hmm. get a disease from an animal. But Ebola is, I think, one solid chapter or one unit in the book and he 
describes it beautifully. He talks about it eloquently. It's fact-based. It's it's very measured. And this is before the outbreak, by the way. So he doesn't talk about, you know, the most recent cases. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be afraid and I'm not saying that people shouldn't, you know, protect themselves, but I think that we have to be rational and we have to be reasonable and mass hysteria does not help. And we also have to know the difference again between how infectious something is and how contagious something is. Ebola is not that contagious. You can't get it from the air. Right. And it's, it's never going to, it's never going to, how to say. It's never going to um, become airborne. Become, yeah, that's, airborne. Yeah. Exactly. That's like yeah. a media fear. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that comes from. It's conspiracy theory fear. Um, there's like one published story, uh, one published journal article about a monkey getting Ebola from a pig when they never uh, were in the same enclosure. But that pig, you know, there's all that tells me is that when a pig sneezes, it's got a, sh- a bunch of snot and it can spray it all over the monkey's face. Like, that's not something that we're seeing. It's not like SARS. It's not a respiratory syndrome. Mm-hmm. So it's not that contagious, but it's highly infectious, which means that only a small amount of the virus can make you very sick and can possibly kill you. So if you are exposed, then you're in a grim situation and you have to get treatment right away. So you've got to be careful if you're near anybody that could potentially be exposed and you have to quarantine for those 21 days. It's very important. But if you look at it, at, for example, that situation where the man uh, unfortunately passed away in, in Dallas, one nurse got ill, which is so sad, and we're all very upset about it. But at least only one nurse got ill. All right. of the other doctors that worked on that patient, all of the people who came in, in contact with him so far are healthy. Right. And and, and, so- and, and and we look at all this. And like you said, it is sad and it's, 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 it's really unfortunate. And like you said, um, hopefully, you know, the people who are infected, they, they pull through. But if you look at all the statistics about all the other health problems that people have in USA, um, you know, because over, you know, like you said before, <laughs> when you mentioned Texas, overeating or obesity, um, you know, and, yeah. and, and hard, heart diseases and, and lung cancer and, and so on and so on. And then one one um, Ebola case comes comes through, and it's, it's it seems from over here it seems like there's like a almost like a panic over there. That's what I'm trying to say. From there Europe, is. You know, it's because there's there's a. I mean, I know this is the wrong word to use, but there's a sexiness to it. The media can show that that picture of the Ebola virus, and they can talk about oh, it's a hemorrhagic fever, and people have internal bleeding, and they dramatize it so much, and we have an emotional response to that. Mm-hmm. But the truth is. Not once have I really seen a strong story other than the frontline piece about the lives of the people who are actually affected. Not once am I seeing an empathetic coverage of this massive humanitarian crisis that's occurring in West Africa right now. Maybe we should be a little bit less concerned about whether or not, oh, my God, am I going to get Ebola because I take some random flight from JFK to L.A.? Like, stop. You're not the fucking center of the universe. Like, you're not going (laughs) to get Ebola. You have literally no risk of that. But there are people right now in West Africa that have an increased risk of coming down with this disease. And if they do, they will likely die, which is a very, very difficult and incredibly sad situation. And I would like to see more aid. I would like to see more attention drawn to that. And I would like to see the entire world band together around these global crises earlier. I would like to see us be concerned about people, even if they're not, quote unquote, our own people, even if they live halfway across the world. If there are people that are suffering and we have the opportunity to help, I think that we should. I think that we have a moral obligation to do that. And not just because, 
a white person gets infected. That's yeah. my soapbox. Yeah. I'll get yeah. off of it. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, Kara, Kara, one more thing before uh, before we wrap this, wrap this up. I, I I just when you mentioned earlier that you're gonna you might travel to Alaska and and um, and uh, I think Antarctica. You said, uh, uh, yeah, but you also I think you mentioned that you've been to Alaska and you looked at I the, have been to looked Alaska. at the salmon, mm-hmm. the gen- genetically modified uh, salmon. And, yes. And, and it, uh, I remember that I listened to one of your podcasts uh, when you talked to one of the one of the specialists or scientists or how I should say um, that was that's working in this field. Um, and as an athlete, I'm always thinking about you know eating the healthy food and, and avoiding the, the the bad food or whatever you want to call it but mm-hmm. um from from the from what i was listening to the podcast what kind of stuck out is that not necessarily all genetically modified food or organisms um are are, are bad and and also that not necessarily all the eco or you know organic food is 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 great it's kind of like a like a gray area in between. Oh, completely. I um, think that this Yeah, this can, you idea... maybe, can you maybe like clarify this a little bit? That Because it's not just when you go to a grocery store that people, I mean, at least I was like this up until I listened to the podcast, that whenever I saw a genetic modified, modified sign, which we have in a lot of stores in Europe, um, I, would, I would just look away. And when I would see something organic or eco, I would just grab it right, right away. Um, mm-hmm. you know, can you make that's like, all yeah. marketing? Yeah, <laughs> it's marketing. I mean, it's a way, it's a way for companies to learn how to make money. I mean, here, there's a great thing that's going viral right now that, that one of my Twitter uh, followers forwarded to me. And it's like a little Jimmy Kimmel sketch where they went out to a farmer's market in Los Angeles and interviewed people at this farmer's market. And they were like, do you avoid GMOs? And they were like, of course. And they were like, why? And they were like, because they're bad. And they said, why are they bad? Like, tell me what a GMO is. And not only did they not know what the word stood for, they didn't know anything about it. So they just knew it was bad. Mm -hmm. And this is a big problem with science literacy. And I don't think it's specific to America. I think it's a global problem. Yep. Genetically modified organisms, or I should say more specifically transgenic organisms, which is what most people are referring to when they say GMO, because all organisms at this point, not all, but most are genetically modified. They've all been crossbred over, you know, like agriculture is not quote unquote natural. Over like millennia, over over hundreds or thousands of years. Oh, hundreds of thousands of years. Exactly. No, no, no. But transgenic uh, modification is a very recent, well, semi-recent phenomenon, last few decades. Um, And this... This specifically involves going into the genome and either extracting or adding specific genes that have that confer certain kind of functions, certain phenotypes to the organism. So maybe I want to make an organism more hardy. Maybe I want to make it spoil later or, you know, have a thicker skin, be pest resistant, you know, whatever the case may be. That's what I'm working on. And that especially comes comes into play in, 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 in the like the areas that has have food food shortages, right? Like, I mean, completely. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, there are large corporations that are doing this, and why are they doing it? They're doing it to make money. Money, exactly. like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But there are also incredibly good uses, and I always try to liken this unto, like, for example, big pharma in America. And I'm not sure if this will translate for you guys, but there are a lot of people who are really upset with the way that pharmaceutical companies are run in America. They they're able to market to people individually. They they hold patents for years and years and years and they make so much money um, at the expense of people's health but nobody throws the baby out with the bathwater. I've never heard somebody say I don't trust big pharma so I'm never going to a doctor again I'd mm-hmm. rather just take herbs no that's <laughs> insane and I think people have the same weird 
knee-jerk reaction with genetically modified organisms where they say, I don't trust Monsanto, so I'm not going to eat GMOs. And it's like, yeah, I don't trust Monsanto either. They have business practices that I disagree with. A lot of those claims are overblown, though. A lot of it is propaganda. And so I do implore people to please do your own research. And if the article you're reading is on the website, www.gmos are horrible and you're going to hell if you eat them.com, it's probably not the best source. Um, I just made that up. <laughs> by the way. So do, do, do the research, try and inform uh, yourself. But just because you don't like this company doesn't mean that you should throw the baby out with the bathwater and be against the process. Mm-hmm. Genetically modifying organisms is a necessity. It is a global necessity to feed a growing population to make sure that we have fresh food that's not spoiled, that's not being eaten by bugs, and that we can transport across the world so that you can have your precious pineapples even if they're not growing in your ecosystem. So it's like in a lot of ways, I feel like the people that complain about genetically modified organisms are it's it's a first world problem. It's kind of a yuppie person problem. And because of that, I mean, I'm always wanting to educate and inform and have, you know, a really, um, I think, an intellectual discourse. We can have strong arguments. If you want to talk about labeling, that's a different issue than talking about whether or not they should be commercially available. But the truth of the matter is, I want to see somebody who is living in one of these places, let's say like Liberia or Guinea or Sierra Leone, who's anti-GMO because I'm yeah. telling you those arguments aren't popping up in those kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, the, I, yeah. no, I, I was this summer I was in, I was in Chad. I was in Africa on a mm-hmm. uh, UNICEF mission to, uh, you know, see the area and, and to um, uh, basically um, gather as much as video um, material for the, for different, different kind of campaigns. And uh, that's why this, I find this connection, you know, the people over there definitely would not um, complain whether it's a GMO or not. They would, they're desperately no, can you for, imagine? For, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You go to a local farmer and you say, okay, these seeds, you know, grow rice. These seeds grow rice that's fortified with vitamin A. Or these seeds grow tomato. Well, there are no GM tomatoes yet on the market. But let's say these seeds grow corn, but these seeds grow corn that are resistant to pests. Mm-hmm. Who, what are they going to choose? They're going to choose the one that gives them a better yield. Mm-hmm. They're going to choose the one that makes a healthier product. And the reason is because the fundamental goal of farming is to feed people. Now, if you want to complain about the fact that the U.S. has corn subsidies and those are conferred to these different uh, seed companies and these seed companies are patenting their seeds and all this bullshit around this problem, which I have philosophical arguments against that's fine but don't simplify it don't say oh it's because gmos are bad there's no nuance in that argument there's no context and it's it's putting a wrench in a technology that is literally saving lives and that's why it matters so much to me mm-hmm. yeah no it's, it's it's important i think especially like i said it comes into into play you know, poor, poor, the poorest areas when it's or whatever it's hard to grow food, but but growing population all over the world, I mean, needs needs uh, you know <laughs> needs food needs more and more. Um, the, the only the only exactly. problem that I really have with 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 GMOs and the companies is the way you know at least from what I've read and what I listened to is the way they quote unquote enslave some of the like farm you know farm farm not pharmacists but um, people uh, people working farms just because they have to buy their seeds and have to be dependent on their seeds and. 
Um, well, and, and again, that's that's a problem in some ways. That's a problem with monopolies. And yes. so it's up to a government to bust monopolies. That's what we need to have regulations for. The truth is nobody has to buy a product unless they don't have any other options. So this seed company who has this seed, if there's a mom and pop seed next to it that doesn't have those genetic modifications – Nobody's saying you have to buy Monsanto seed. Buy the other fucking seed. The reason farmers buy Monsanto seeds is because Monsanto seeds work. They buy them because they're able to get a, re a, a reliable product out of it. Now, if they're in a situation where you're right, they go to the seed store and there's nothing else on the shelves, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But that's not the fault uh, well, it, in some ways, it probably is the fault of the company because the company has probably got their hands again in the legislator's pockets. But it's the fault of an entire system that's allowing a monopoly to thrive, which is very detrimental for for a thriving economy. So that's a different that's argument. Different. Yes, yes. No, I understand. But the seed itself is there's not been one legitimate published study that shows that it has any risks to health or human safety, yet people consistently report that GMOs are unhealthy for you. And I've, they're literally making that up. <laughs> they're making up it's it's total propaganda i'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie that's how i am when i go to the store i grab the organic, <laughs> organic exactly yes, whatever you know exactly well the next time you look at like a can of coke it'll probably say on it all natural like yeah. <laughs> these are just buzzwords that help them sell their product and we've got to remember that we've got to not be such dopes when we go in as consumers we've got to educate ourselves so that a green leaf on a package doesn't make us buy the thing that costs three dollars more. Mm -hmm. That's the exact same food, and, you know. And, and which You're basically paying for the green leaf on the exactly. <laughs> and which fruit was it that it's that it's not genetically modified strawberry or, or something? There's apparently that... a lot. Yeah, like there's no genetically modified strawberries on the market. I learned a lot when I sat down with Kevin Folta. He's yes, a researcher yes, yes, um, who sure. studies or who does uh, uh, GM research in Florida. Uh -huh. I learned a lot sitting down with him because there were a lot of things that he told me that I wasn't aware of. I didn't realize that golden rice actually never made it to the places where it was supposed to go because Greenpeace effectively stopped it. Yes, they had a big campaign not to allow golden rice. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so there were like millions of people who uh, were negatively impacted because golden rice was never made available. And I also didn't realize how few um, fruits and vegetables are actually available as GMOs. The problem is they're mostly staple crops. So if you look at America, like wheat, corn, and soy, that makes everything because we basically eat human kibble. We just eat, <laughs> we eat carbs that are made out of wheat, corn, and soy every yeah. day. And that's another human issue because we have, kibble. yeah, we have ridiculous like corn subsidies in this country. So corn yeah. is cheaper than like, it's oh, like, there's this awesome documentary. It was King Corn. Yeah, so no, that, that totally. Awesome. Just it's like, learn about insane. that and find something to be mad about. Like, it's like, don't blame the GMO. It's like, it goes yeah. a lot deeper than that. Um, all right, Kara, right. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't, you know, couldn't uh, say thanks enough. I mean, it's, uh, this has been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Of and, course. Uh, yeah, thanks. And, and learn a lot, a lot of new stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I learned more, more about you, uh, you know, throughout this, this podcast than, than any other that I listen to. So it's, it's completely different once, once I actually get a chance to talk to you. So thank, thanks so much. Thanks for taking your time. Um, of course. And, and expect, uh, expect a new listener um, from Europe or from Slovenia joining your, your podcast uh, audience. So oh, very uh, we'll, cool. We'll spread yeah, the I mean, word for sure. 
Great. I'm always really excited when um, I look at my stats and I see that I have a growing international audience. And so um, thank you so much if you're listening to this right now, if you are interested in going to like iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, whatever uh, RSS reader you use, Talk Nerdy with Kara Santa Maria. I'd love to have you. And also, oh, on Twitter, because everybody's on Twitter now. I'm at Kara Santa Maria. Uh, So follow me and I'll say hi. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> yeah, like it did to me. I was really surprised when I when I tweeted you. I was like, oh, for sure, she's too busy. She doesn't know what she's going to answer. But it did right away, and, and we got in touch, and we here we are talking. So thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, you, I love the internet. It's so cool. It's awesome. <laughs> it's magic. Basically. It is. It really That's, is. Uh, Andrea, Andre, where, can, uh, where can people find us? Where can people find this podcast and um, all that stuff? Uh, the site is thedetailspodcast.com, and then we're also in iTunes. So if you leave a review there, that'd be great. And uh, that's pretty much it, right? That's for the English stuff. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And we're also Slovenian, on Twitter. We Slovenian version, yeah. We have a lot more. Um, yeah. There's like a home about. network and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I will tweet the hell out of this. I will get you guys. Uh, you. you get me some Slovenian followers. Uh, I'll get you some, some uh, American listeners. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> for sure. Um, anyways, I'm at Book and Navar on Twitter. Uh, Andrea, you're... English Twitter. You say it. Just say it. Uh, I'm done with the jokes. Kara, he has the most, the weirdest Twitter name. What is it? It's at Atomic XX. And two X's, right? XX. Yes, two X's. I'm like, thank God he doesn't have three because that would be like just a weird, you know? (laughs) At least it's easy easy to remember. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, uh, everybody, Uh, go check out Talk Nerdy with Kara Santa Maria. Um, awesome podcast, Kara. Thanks again. Um, yeah, and, thank you. Um, you know, we'll, we'll keep in touch. We'll we'll definitely let you know when this podcast comes out. It should come out on Monday. The it's like four days or something like that. So, yeah. oh great. Um, yeah, thanks again. And, thank um, you. Bye. Goodbye to to LA. Thanks. <laughs> bye. <Bye-bye. laughs> All right. Bye.